I remember training. I always say ladies. I was training ladies. They're the ones that stand out, and they're going into a squat, and their knees are almost touching each other. And and the the biomechanical standard is that the femur stays on top of the tibia. That's safe, and anywhere inside that's dangerous. And you and you start when you start looking at muscle tissue, like we were talking about, and asking what specifically do those muscle tissues do? What movements do they decelerate? They decelerate on our asked given the option to contract in a valgus flexed inside position. And so these ladies have went from, we've got to take these knees out because that's safe and use bands or whatever to pull knees out and squat down. So this idea of actually they're doing that movement and, and unconsciously to them, they have no idea they're doing it wrong. They're just waiting for their extensor chain to kick in. And that what you're viewing is how long it takes for their extensor chain to kick in. So when the knees finally almost touch each other, the brain goes, oh, shit, wakes up and contracts the uh, tissue and pulls them back up again. And you realize that actually you've got to improve the mechanics. So you improve the foot pronation, you improve the access into flexion and tibiofemoral external rotation and maybe hip flexion and whatever. And then it's, they start to catch sooner and sooner and sooner and they they find themselves in a place where they can now squat neatly but they never ever get that opportunity to learn if we take the knees out strap it out with a with a band because it's the learning space that they're looking for that's what we deprive them from you see kids do it right from a young age that was biomechanist gary ward speaking on the foot as well as principles of motor learning and exploration in creating better movement patterns for athletes you're listening to the just fly performance podcast Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 98 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have biomechanist Gary Ward. Gary is the author of the book, What the Foot?, and he is the founder of Anatomy in Motion. So an important part of this podcast, if you've been listening to it for a little while, you've probably noticed I've been really interested in the foot and how it relates to not only athletic performance, but also just holistic human movement. And I think that's one area of the field that definitely, it's kind of like on the fringe, and it's definitely not truly mainstream. It's not like in you know typical sports performance books to have like a whole chapter devoted to the foot. I, I think that hopefully will be the case someday, just because... It's how we speak to the ground. It's what happens uh, from the ground up, so to speak, and transmits itself into the rest of our body. It's uh, the transmission of our car. 
in terms of how our muscles connect to the ground and how our force is amplified. So the foot's hugely important to human performance, injury prevention, jumping higher, sprinting faster. And if you care about those things, I think you'll really enjoy the episode today. So about Gary, um, I think that one of the cool things that sets him apart and we talk about the foot being on the fringe a little bit. And I think it takes someone who almost can think outside the box or someone who can think outside the box to really enlighten us into that area in that realm. So uh, Gary started his interest in the foot as a ski boot fitter. So saw tons of feet and linked that to whatever issues people were having. And uh, on his journey, he really is known as a guy who can take people where everything else has failed, uh, look at their feet, figure out what's causing issues upstream, and fix pain uh, within minutes and not the months that it typically takes. So just hardwiring into that that shortcut. And it's not really a shortcut, it's just an important thing to look at. And so uh, that, so uh, Gary's uh, passion for the foot definitely influences his model of human movement. Uh, he's not just a foot guy, as you heard from the intro and you'll, you'll hear on this podcast. He has big rules of human biomechanics that really define uh, not only why the foot is important, but just our model of what we're doing when we train athletes. And one of the huge things too in, in this podcast and just in general is that the rules for strength training are a little different from regular human movement. And that's important because knowing uh, when someone's knees are turning in, knowing why they're turning in, what muscles that is developing and what mechanics and, and rules of movement that's going by and how that might change if you have 500 pounds on your back and and then what that means if you're sprinting or jumping. So um, again, one of the things that's drawn me to Gary's work is just his holistic assessment of the body. So not just looking at one thing, not looking at one polarized model, but putting a lot of things together to define movement. Some of the rules you'll see if you were to read the book, uh, What the Foot, are things like uh, joints act and muscles react. That's something that's continually been just sticking out to me. Uh, I've learned that as well from uh, Adarian Barr and working with him and just the idea of whatever the joints are doing, the muscles are going to respond to it. So often we think the other way in the field. We think, okay, how am I going to train this muscle? Rather than thinking, how will I optimally set the body up uh, to be mechanically efficient, working the way it's supposed to work, and then letting the muscles do their thing? So uh, we'll be going into that a lot. And uh, also, <clears throat> Gary's going to get into a lot about what's called center or neutrality. If you've been through PRI or postural restoration, you've probably heard this a lot. Uh, I like Gary's uh, take and view on it. It's almost like uh, the two are very connected and the ideas are very connected. And uh, definitely have to get outside that idea of just like just bracing and locking down and, and you're going to lock down in this position so you can squat this monster weight. But that really doesn't have anything to do with hitting a baseball or throwing a javelin or a tennis racket or sprinting or jumping. Uh, center is a very different concept and Gary's going to get into that. So uh, for this uh, episode particularly, he's gonna, uh, Gary will go into his background, how he began interest in the foot. He's going to talk a little bit about his big rules of movement, uh, particularly the joints acting, the way muscles fire around that, and then talking about center. We're also going to go into the importance of pronation. And I think that's a massive concept just because so many of us think pronation and our brain just goes to overpronation and bad but you have to pronate to be powerful. So we'll get into that important concept and as well as some other little cool things about human biomechanics and movement. So uh, this is a little bit of a nerdy movement episode. It's one that honestly I would recommend listening to a few times, taking notes. And But once you get it, once these things start to connect, it redefines how you think of training athletes. So uh, Gary's definitely a guy who's spearheading uh, a different but a holistic and a functional way of looking at the human body. And I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Episode 98 with Gary Ward. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. 
Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be had on the show. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, really excited to dig into a little bit of biome biomechanics and the foot. And, man, your work, uh, I've just been reading your book and, and learning more about you. I think um, some of the things you're doing are anything that takes people back to how the body's actually supposed to work is, is just so important. And uh, before we yeah. get on with the, with the questions, could you share a little bit about your, your background and, and how you got started and where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, well... Um, as unusually, I began um, working with the human body as a ski boot fitter in the French Alps, um, where the story goes that I basically learned uh, about foot anatomy in, in, a, in three days plus ongoing training, kind of literally thrown in the deep end with a pair of feet in my face and a, and a guy wants a pair of boots put into his feet. Um, and... Um, I, yeah, I'd kind of I'd gone to the Alps as a way of kind of hiding from from reality, uh, but actually found my passion, which was was to understand the the foot. But the the movement in the foot, these guys taught me how to look at the foot when it walks, how the foot should sit in the ski boot, how the um, ski boot should integrate with the ski, and what it you know the difference um, that, that a good fitting boot can make versus a bad fitting boot, and. Um, and I and I I really connected with two things. Um, one was I was good at it. Two, I enjoyed it. Um, and I noticed really quickly that people noticed that they had improvements in their performance, which was great. But more shockingly, people would come back to me and say that their back didn't hurt today or whatever. So there was all these big two big questions: Did I make a small adjustment in the foot and it enhances performance on a pair of skis or gets rid of their pain? Um, which for me was mind-blowing. I'd come from a background of trying to teach French and German to kids to suddenly helping people in, in, their, in their bodies. So I was, my interest was hugely piqued. Um, the process for me then was to jump into something. I'd, I'd gone away to leave education, so I didn't want to go and do a degree, so I chose to get a personal training and sports therapy qualification and um, and then con continued with on-the-job learning. But one of the things that I was acutely aware of, this was early turn of the century, was nobody was really talking about uh, feet, and certainly not talking about feet and its connection to the body. So um, not that I was looking for a niche, but I just started jumping in. Uh, certainly when I started personal training and finished my ski days, jumping in, teaching trainers uh, just to look at the feet and make connections, and, and you know, the rest is kind of history. Uh, the history, just to fill it in, is um, traveling um, around the world, teaching courses, teaching chiropractors, osteopaths, sports coaches, uh, Pilates teachers, trainers, body workers, you know, fascial workers. All the body workers um, come and they come into a big group and sit on the course uh, where we talk about anatomy, uh, anatomy of the foot, anatomy of the knee, the hip, everything. Uh, recognizing that it's all in, it's all encompassing, and that, that we have a model. I have built a model called the flow motion model, which we you might want to talk about. Uh, but the model is basically based on how we walk, and how we walk is the journey that every structure in our body will take to get from heel to toe and back again um, in all three dimensions. And so we're able to then assess the body, and, and it just turns out that we theoretically go through a variety of postures um, in each step um, and those postures can be held by our patients and our clients 
So they're actually dominantly accessing one side of their gate cycle and unable to access the others, which is a, a huge story then for all use movement as a training help give these movements back which enable people to restore their posture or change the way they walk and, and it would go back to the whole skiing thing of my performance is improving and my pain is improving so we've been able to i've been able to kind of capture that um, first initial feeling all the way through through the process Sure. I, th I like how, uh, and you mentioned this in your book, like how you were a, a language teacher and how I, I like how like the foot is really complex. And you mentioned like, I think the complexity of the foot tends to steer a lot of people away, like initially, because they like just don't want to get into it. And uh, yeah. one thing you had mentioned, you said there that I think like right off the bat, people will get people's wheels turning and, and it gets mine is you said you fixed people's back pain. Their back pain went away when they made adjustments with their feet and their ski boots. So what, um, like, what's the link? Like, why? Uh, I think a lot of people might be curious. What's the link between fixing someone's foot? Like, why is fixing someone's foot going to uh, have such a profound impact? That's a full-on question, straight in. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm just going, just going for it. <laughs> I haven't got time. Yeah, let's move on. Um, well, I'll pre just reorganize that a little bit and because that i am actually the last person who'll turn around and say i fixed something um what i would say i did was change the way that the foot's resting um and what we by starting to look at um all these structures in in the closed chain i.e when we're upright when our feet are engaged with the ground you recognize that if you um, have a rotation of your talus bone internally, there's a, there's a feed up, there's a, your tibia rotates, then the knee has a rotation, your pelvis rotates away. Anybody can stand up, rotate their left talus and pelvis will rotate right. That's normal um, response. And so even in just in that conversation, your, your pelvis spends its life rotated to the right. Generally, we're all going to look forward at the person we're talking to. So we rotate back to our left and already you've got some kind of torsion in the muscles, tension on one side, compression on the other side, add in another plane so the pelvis has shifted a bit to the right, then you start to get compression on the right and tension on the left, and all of a sudden it hasn't taken a, a lot to to magnify up the chain into an area where, where we feel discomfort. Um, of course, our modern story is to report your back pain, get, get it foam rolled or injected or surgically operated on or stretched or do some strength work or your glutes are weak and have all these stories around it um we're really interested in actually saying looking deeply at the structures and working out what it is that is not that is contributing to the tie up in that area so that if you and then you can test it so you just move the talus away and it might they might find movement easier they might find comfort there and then you're actually working on on that talus rather than working on the back and and and, and the, the model that i mentioned in the intro there is has really become what we like to call a map so the map is is all the joint relationships around the body not just when you're standing bilaterally but actually in sequence through a bunch of phases um, i have 12 phases in the walking cycle um, and so that's 12 different relationships going on around the body and um we're able to use that map as a way to, to, to go, hey, you know what, that shoulder pain might not be shoulder, it's, it, but we can actually track it 
and then sometimes well not sometimes nearly all the time you can use that history to help you you know most people have had a history piece that is kind of impactful on their life and they had it treated and the pain went away but the pattern that their body got locked up in never got changed never got addressed um, and eventually it's going to cause knock-on elsewhere so the map hopefully is is something that can help us treat i realize i'm talking at the moment in a treatment space i spend a lot of my time in treatment space rather than a coaching space these days but um be nice to move that theory on into your into your world for your audience yeah yeah well that's i'm, I'm definitely hoping to be able to uh, as we go through the questions expand on those applications but but by like biomechanics are universal so i i'm regardless i and one of the things i think that whether you're a trainer or a therapist everyone's like weak glutes you you're, your back hurts because you have weak glutes <laughs> like yeah. what, what exactly is weak glutes like i mean yeah. I, i've muscle tested a lot of people i can get your glutes to fire and do something it's like you know i'm i'm i think that is so often uh, thrown out there when like you said if if from the ground up you're having a twisting on one side that's that's different on the other side um, yeah the back is the the conjunction of it and well I'll, even yeah. right from there if you have a if we go back to that talus analogy which has ended up with your pelvis rotated right you have an internally rotated right hip and externally left hip and that's a shortening of the glute on the left side and tightening of on the other side so all of a sudden you've got different right versus left that will lead into stride length changes and blah 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 blah, blah. so it, it ripples out all through the system that's kind of unavoidable so you'll know um taking a bit of a leap but we the weak glutes conversation is a muscle tissue conversation but the in the book that you that you've been reading what the foot it says the second rule of i can't remember how i put it now the second big rule of motion that we talk about joints act and muscles react so you always got to look at the joints the joint system how the joints move how free they are and and able to move so that the muscles have actually got something to do so it, it you can muscle test and you can um which i'm a big proponent of but um and you can force that glute to be super active in a extensor chain activity type way but if the structure doesn't change and the pattern of moving doesn't change does the role of the glute change and that's the big i think that's potentially one of the bigger gaps that we have to deal with yeah yeah i actually like to get into that point a little bit um what you just said there and and i remember so this has always been something interesting to me is is um and what you just said is such a game changer for me that like joints acting and muscles reacting to the position those joints are in. Uh, I think that would be a great place to start uh, or well to ask that next question. Uh, just kind of, I, I may have had it down the line, but I'd, I would love to bring it to the top because that's that's really blown my mind in, in terms of how I think about muscles and muscle availability and and how I mean calling a muscle weak. Uh, could you chat about that just a little bit maybe in respect to the glutes but or in general? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, uh, my brain doesn't go to muscles anymore. Kind of there's, there's, muscles will do anything the joint asks of it. So the less and less that a joint is able to do, the less and less a muscle has to do. Um, and that's where you'll start. If, you, if you're coming up with something that's weak, you have to check in what are the structures it's attached to and is that free and willing and able to move. Um, and it might not be that that joint is a problem per se but that that joint is stopped moving because something else is moving too much or we no longer put weight on that side because of something that happened in our in our past or whatever but you're going to end up with muscles that either have something to do or don't on the same message muscles can have way too much to do 
um, and end up blowing themselves out that way as well. Um, but it is interesting because if I go back to my personal training days and, and coaching days, we everything got boxed off, and I don't think these boxes are too different these days, so I think it's fair to say that we'll have long and weak and short and tight. And those, um, what you'll start to realize is, is that we think long and weak need stretch, strengthening and shortening, and short and tight need stretching and, I don't know, foam rolling or something. Um, but those calls are being made regardless of the actual structure. So you can have a weak muscle that is, that is short by virtue of the, the origin and insertion points being closer together, but still there being weakness in that muscle. And in the same breath, you can have a muscle that is long and working really hard and tight by virtue of the origin and surgeon being far apart. So a lot of hamstrings, they're, they're actually, they're going to be long and tight. Um, hip flexors, they tend, when they're problematic, they tend to be long and tight. And so the go-to, if you ask in a room of students, what's your go-to, they're going to go stretch it. There's no point stretching it if it's already long and tight. We're going to have to actually teach it to shorten or work out what parts of the anatomy aren't allowing movement so that those things can can actually take place. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, oh, that's that's a huge one too. I mean, I, I think that the, and it hasn't changed. I mean, the industry paradigm still is certainly if the muscle's short, stretch it. If it's long, you know, tone it yeah. up and you know, try to try to get everything back. Uh, so just kind of following up on that too, and I think uh, you know, practical examples are always helpful. But if somebody, um, I'm sure there could be a lot of things too. But if somebody uh, does have uh, a long and yet tight hamstring, uh, what's your what's what muscles around it are you looking at? Uh, what's uh, what's like a uh, what falls into your correction for that type of uh, when someone shows oh. up with that? Uh, how so, maybe, yeah. So again, I'm not looking. I wouldn't be looking at the muscle per se. I'd be um, looking at the ability to gain access to that muscle through my skeletal movement. Interesting thing about like we'll do um, uh, trying to, to put into a context, but the, in 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 human movement, uh, m- mapping the gait cycle like I did, there's no uh, biaxial muscles that actually. Um, will lengthen at both ends and shorten at both ends. So you can look at rec fem, sartorius, hamstrings, uh, anything that crosses the two joints, certainly around the hip knee area, that there will always be um, long lengthening at one end while shortening at the other. So a hamstring, you're now looking at, um, if you were to do a stretch with a straight knee and an anterior tilting in the pelvis, then you're putting length into it both ends. Now, that length doesn't carry over to how we would choose to use that muscle when walking. So um, throwing it up there, we know that when we're in strike phase and we're putting our heel on the ground in walking, um, the, the, straight, the knee would be straightening uh, and the pelvis, because of the swinging leg, would be posterior tilting. So you have a shortening of the fibers at the top and lengthening of the fibers at the bottom. And as you roll into a pronation now, you're, you're starting to sh- flip it around. So the knee's flexing, the pelvis is anterior tilting. You're now getting length at the proximal fibers and, and shortening at the distal. So we uh, and that's yeah, it's kind of all three planes. I'm <laughs> thinking quite loud and uh, on top. But we then have to check the ability for the pelvis to anterior tilt. You have to check the ability for the knee to flex and extend. 
Um, so a lot of people whose feet are pronated and will kind of create a valgus knee shape and an, and an inability to extend their knee. So that already puts a compromise into the hamstring structure. So there's so much that could be going on, uh, not least uh, we all know that if you have your head forward, that can put tension in hamstrings. If the head's fixed forward and left, for instance, so there's a whole body picture that I'd be keen to look at. So whether it's someone's hamstring, whether it's their glute, whether it's a plantar fascia problem, uh, or even a even a pec or you know um, neck problem, we, we have to look. We changed it from being a neck problem to a whole body problem, hamstring problem to a whole body problem. And, and what is it? What are the clues that we need to look at? One of the the take homes of what you just said, and this reminded me of um, actually something that I that Douglas Heal had said about the psoas, like I learned this like five years ago, but like this was the first time I heard like one end of the psoas could be lengthening and the other end is shortening. And I'm like, what? Right. I thought muscles just, you know, linearly contracted and, and you know, it's yeah. just a game over. Like, well, this is crazy. Like, how am I supposed to keep track of things? So, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so and, I always say you've got three, three planes. So you, you can move a joint where you shorten a muscle in one plane lengthen it in another plane and do nothing in the third plane i mean that that is just mind-blowing and so i always end up laughing with people saying you know if you actually really want to understand muscle you have to understand the movement because each muscle has suddenly just become has got three different possible six even possibilities um and they're blow they just they drive you mad muscles eventually drive you mad and so you go look at the joint is the joint doing what it should no when it does the muscles have no option but to fall into line um and so that's why I say I hardly think about tissue anymore. We have we have we teach and talk about tissue, but certainly as a go-to, I'm not that interested in it because I'm really interested in making sure that the, the things they hang on to move um, based on that principle of joint sac muscles react. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Like a lot of track coaches would say, uh, you know, we talk about all the stuff we can do in the weight room to make the muscles as strong as we can, but if your mechanics aren't very good it doesn't yeah. really matter. Like you, you aren't really giving your muscles much of a choice with particular running mechanics. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Great. I, I like, I had liked what you said about giving muscles, like, like the idea of giving muscles options. And I, I, I agree with you. Like it, with looking at all the actions that muscles really do. Um, and some of the great coaches that I know almost have gone a little bit more away from muscles and yeah, into what the skeleton is doing and, and, looking how the muscles can react to that, but the idea of, of giving muscles options. Could you kind of go into that? Like, what does it mean to uh, be in a position that allows the muscle to work um, yeah. more naturally or, or having having more options of movement? Yeah, well, I'm kind of thinking we should bring in the first rule of that movement, which is the muscles lengthen before they contract in motion. Um, that's not to say that we can't contract a muscle and move a joint, because we know we can. Um, but in an unconscious environment of walking down the road or, or swinging a golf club or swimming in the pool or um, getting out of the blocks, this this kind of stuff is happening. Even getting out of the blocks, I'm like, well, you put all of your extensor chain into some kind of flexion so that you can lengthen from that flexed position. And, and I, I, I did a, a set of kind of pre-course videos where I explained this phenomenon that we're going to talk about now. And I, before I did that, I'd stand in the classroom and I'd ask everybody the same question, and I'd get the same answer all over, all, wherever I went. And then we changed it, and I filmed this video, and now nobody gives me those answers. So then I, but now I've just gone back out and done some uh, kind of talks, more public stuff, and I realised that everybody's giving me the same answers again. So it's worth chucking in to, to the video. 
And that is that um, we've got concentric, eccentric, and isometric contraction in a tissue. And a concentric contraction, I'll ask the question, uh, you know, what is it? It's shortening under load, and the joints would come together when the tissue concentrically contracts. And you say, which way are the fibers contracting? Um, and everyone says, you know, towards the middle. Yeah, great. What's an eccentric contraction? They'll say eccentric. Uh, actually, less and less people seem to say this these days. You have to drag it out of them, but it's, <laughs> it's a, a lengthening under load. And then which way would the bones be going? They'd be moving apart. So which way are the fibers contracting? And they all say away from the center. At which point we, we, we've, we've got these two ideas, an eccentric movement and a concentric movement. But of course, in an eccentric movement, the fibers are still contracting the same way as a concentric movement. Um, and so what that means is that as joints move apart, the muscle is contracting kind of ferociously in order to stop those joints from moving apart because we know if they keep going, they're going to rip. So they kind of live on the edge. They uh, activate the muscle. They stop it from traveling away. They have an isometric moment where nothing's moving and then it comes back to the middle again. Um, and that's what you see in human movement is this pendulum almost. If you think of the hip, it goes from flexion to extension. So when it's at its most flexed point, the contraction of the extensor tissue is to bring it backwards. Once it's bringing it backwards, it doesn't have anything else to do. So there's this thing called momentum, where the body is propelled forward, foot mechanics come into play, but the other leg's swinging forward, and it's crashing forward at a rate of knots. Other muscles now have to decelerate that. They don't want to be worried about this other leg as well. So we, have, we go from flexion to extension. Momentum kicks in, and then once we get to our most extended, then all of a sudden the psoas has its thing to do, and, and the anterior uh, fibers where they'll now contract to bring the leg forward again. And, and so it's recognizing that, and I think a lot of movement and a lot of therapy and a lot of training is, is uh, part of, obviously things like squat is different, but we'll lay you on the ground in neutral and ask you to lift that heel off the ground, extending the hip, which is glute activation. Um, but it's not really. It's, that's why we know we can look at people when they've got their lumbers overworking or hamstring overworking versus standing them up and teaching them to flex well so that those muscles have no option but to work so that they can begin to extend the, the hip. Um, so re just really recognizing that there's a, there's a pendulum effect. There's a, uh, every joint has access both ways to flex and extend and the same joint to adduct and abduct and the same joint to internally and externally rotate um, and that we need to be able to create that journey for whoever it is, injured person or aspiring athlete they need to have access to those joints in order to fulfill their their goals yeah uh you had said um <clears throat> it's interesting to me like the idea of i think we do get caught up in at least from a muscle perspective like like the muscles are doing something radically different in that eccentric contraction but i mean the actin the actin myosin has just know how to grab and contract right like are they they don't have a different yeah. pro <laughs> they aren't they aren't doing a different protocol for the different the the different, different movements yeah no. Yeah, that's Absolutely. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Now, with, with muscle testing, like you mentioned, muscles lengthening before they shorten. How does that impact a muscle test? Because a lot of muscle tests would start in kind of neutral and then shorten, wouldn't they? Is that does that play into uh, yeah the, the whole scheme? It, I've played around with this in my head quite a lot. I I do wonder if we're testing eccentrically versus concentrically um, in a muscle test, but jury's kind of out. Um, I think if I push down and you're pushing up then I'm attempting to lengthen and your muscles are reacting to that. Um, but also it's in a shortened space generally. So um, 
I'm not sure. I mean, I, the muscle testing uh, process that I uh, went down the process of learning and um, called neurogenetic therapy and working with that, recognizing that the information I can get from uh, a muscle test actually feeds directly. What the cool bit is you learn the patterns. You can go, oh, this muscle's working in, to compensate for that one. And then in my head, I go, so that joint's overdoing something and that joint's underdoing something. And then we can see how that plays out in the model and we can go do some of the skeletal movement and then see how that the muscle testing kind of changes. So, um, yeah, big fan of that. I mean, I don't have any science or anything to back up, whether it's concentric, eccentric, but I'm a big, I want to say, that there's only one contraction. There's the one type of contraction. It can. It just happens to be happening while the joints are moving apart, and then continues to bring the joints back together. And I think I'm talk about in the book finding center. Being being centered is like the holy grail of human movement. Centered is a neutral spine, neutral pelvis, neutral uh, shoulder girdle, neutral feet. We can't live there. We have to move away from it. We have to move back to it. But um, the uh, this. The, the muscle thing, I just kind of lost my train of thought ever so briefly there, but the we, the one type of muscle contraction that we have is when we're moving away from centre, the muscles will wake up and bring us back to centre. Concentric comes in, eccentric as we move out, and, and, and that's that's really a, a more pure way of thinking about, about those things, I think, rather than putting it into an exercise, lowering slowly. I mean, I get it all works. Um, but again, it's that's all around kind of just really, you know, home. But it's funny, isn't it? Because actually, on, in training, you can do German volume training within it with a slow eccentric lowering gives you so much power and strength and bulk and build. And then on the next side, eccentric movements are bad because there's, this is where the muscle tears. So <laughs> you need to have access to both. But it's always going to the tears and the problems are always going to come out of lack of actual mobility awareness in those structures. I think. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, you mentioned, um, <clears throat> Gary, you mentioned finding uh, finding center, and, and that's something that's been intriguing to me. I've done a few courses, and like postural restoration therapy is one of the first things that got me thinking about this, like the idea that your, where your joints are aligned in like a, a squat or when your foot is on the ground might change when your body is in the air in, in gait or something like that. And, and mm. I've seen it like with athletes are doing um, like pull-ups uh, versus when they're standing. Like if they're pull doing a pull-up and they're really straining, like these joints are going all over the place sometimes. Yeah. When, and different than – it's almost like when they unstack themselves, so to speak, like in the, and every, the unweights the system in the air. And I was uh, – that just was making me think, and, and you had mentioned it, but how do you find an athlete's center – uh, in their joints, and then what does that what does that mean for them? It's a great question, um, uh, and <laughs> runs kind of directly into a concept, which is immediately I want to say I don't know where anyone's center is. Each everybody's center is unique to them. So if we're going to find center, we have to we have to invite the person to find it themselves. Does that make sense? Uh, Versus yeah me saying well, I know where your center is you need to be in this position and and the irony is and you know excuse me I'm for jumping down the kind of ranting space but what we've got a lot of people doing is is trying to brace trying to be stable trying to be still but if you're trying to do that in this place where you aren't centered where you've got more weight in your right heel than you have in your left heel 
or you know predominantly body weights in your right heel you've got nothing in your left forefoot then you're bracing in a place that is that is not centered it's centered for you that's what i call a perception of center you'll feel upright but it's not actually real so um we have to invite people to find their own own center and there is a place where they will find that um and i would like to say that we can't judge it and we can't look at it and say you know that's not good enough or um whatever it also takes the pressure off us because we don't we we're not going to get things wrong we're just going to invite the person to move around and 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 i kind of just said back at the hip the hip can flex and extend adduct and abduct and internally and externally rotate then the hip has relationships down and the hip has relationships up and each one of those structures above and below has its six degrees of movement forwards backwards left right and rotations Um, and actually ultimately what if you just were to give the brain an experience of actually moving that structure in that dimension to both ends because we've already seen that the muscles will kind of wake up to that movement what if somebody's uh, foot is just pronated more on the right than the left um, and that foot doesn't have the opportunity to supinate because of whatever history or just repetitive habits but the left one does all right but the right one doesn't then it's it's never going to get that experience so somebody comes along starts to open that ankle up give it its movement potential back so it gets to experience both dimensions both sides starts to feed up the chain you recognize that when i'm externally rotating this talus i need to do something at the knee so you encourage the knee to experience that that's going to feed up to the hip that's going to and if you can tie it up into one big movement which is what our process is all about you start to be able to recognize how quickly you can go from foot to neck in terms of waking up a neck muscle um if you want to use that term um so by experiencing all of this opportunity that they might be missing they tend to gravitate back towards a place where they're where they're centered and 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 an experience of that is we will ask people where the weight is in their feet we've come on a six-day course where's the weight in your feet and every day they do a diary and you watch all the foot pressures just morph back towards the middle not because they've been told to do it but because they now find themselves there they might feel weird if they go back to their old footprint because they've had an experience of, of all the opportunities um we add up all the bones we'll say in a single footstep you follow the model every single bone every single joint moves in all three dimensions to both ends of its own spectrum in 0.6 to 0.8 seconds at the time of a footstep and that's every muscle lengthening and shortening in all three dimensions and a, and a hell of a lot, load of good stuff going on in, internally and as they get that experience on both sides that's what we might start to consider as balance or where we'll see the kind of human homeostasis condition kind of kick in um so yeah finding center is not it's not a uh, a place because some people have they've got breaks and histories and traumas where they've adjusted that you know their center is going to be different to everyone else's but everybody whenever they get to where that is it feels lighter and easier and and that's where they it hopefully carries over into into sports performance one of the things i had heard from a strength coach cal Dietz, like maybe four years ago that really did get me thinking. And I had read this, an article on something on this, like several years before was the idea. And this was back when I was like just in the dead middle of just getting started with the sports performance and human training things. And it was like, basically the idea was like, look, you can do a plank and you can contract all the right muscles, but that doesn't mean that that's going to, that's not happening when you're actually moving and running. And I was like, well, what are we doing planks for then? Like, what you know yeah. what, what, what why is this uh 
and uh, Cal had said it like like try holding the best plank you can and contract your core or your abs and your glutes as hard as you can and then stand up and try to run a 40 yard dash like that and you're not it's not gonna yeah. go very well for you <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's good it's gonna be gonna be quite poor um, but uh, that so that <clears throat> what you just said that I mean I always find it really intriguing because I think it's just like especially strength and conditioning professionals we coach lifts and we coach a squat or a deadlift or a pull-up or or whatever and it's like if someone's off if they're tilting a certain way we'll coach them to not do that but it's always got to be a compensation that they're just doing they're just contracting an extra muscle you know to it's not like coaching them to sway the other way is going to bring them back to center uh so with that with that said though like what are some methods that you're teaching to bring athletes back to center like what's some what's some ways athletes can find their center so they can go out and and be a little bit more aligned in their their movements so we go down a, a process of the i use this term called what's missing so if you uh, if we just visualize somebody doing a squat straight down um and you notice the the consistently the pelvis travels towards the right foot travels to the right kinks the spine into a right side bend at the base um and then you can start to look at the the joints the movements in the hip so um you go every time they go into a squat they'll adduct their right hip more than their left the left hip's actually abducting do and we we want them to depending on your cue if you want the foot to be allowed to pronate they want them to adduct together and if you're going to keep the knees out you want them to abduct together but that's doesn't matter which way you go about it that's still not happening you, you what they're missing here is an adduction on the left hip uh, they're also missing a, a side bend to the left of the of the spine um and and so those two things you could just go to look at so what is it how can we create some good adduction exercises knowing that um the muscles of adduction the adductor might need to be abducted more so that the muscle of the that decelerates the abduction can contract learn to contract and it might be that the hip movement needs to work our hip adduction is generally associated with the foot pronation rather than the opposite um and so you can start to look down at the foot and and see what 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 that's doing but the general inquiry like for anybody listening is 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 the is this what's missing space so um i actually i put a um, a video up on it's a product video if that's all right to 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 pitch but it answers your question perfectly which is an opportunity for basically 10 english pounds so um i wanted it to be nice and accessible for everybody um where we'll guide you through a process directly related to the model what we teach and with movements at the end but you go through this process and you should find where the weight is in your feet whether you can adduct your hip or not whether you can rotate your pelvis or not do i do it equally both ways or not um and actually spending some real quality time in a quiet personal space just investigating and then going actually i can't i can't do that i can't do that and it starts to turn into patterns um or i don't do it as well on one side as the other or i definitely do it more on this side than that side and it starts to um, add up and make sense and then i'll do a little bit about your history where you can start to make sense of it and then movements to restore it uh, and those um, movements of restoration in that original context would be can we start looking at ways to laterally flex my spine left more and can i look at ways to adduct my hip more and can i look at ways to pronate that foot more and then you've got away from the squat environment exercises that any forward thinking trainer or coach might be able to come up with um 
which not necessarily going to end up looking like mine, but you're still doing it. You're still promoting these movements that they don't normally frequent in their day to day. So that creates a new experience for the brain. The brain recalibrates a little bit. The spine can now go easily left more than right. The hip can adduct and abduct. The foot can pronate and supinate a bit better. And the next time you put them in a squat, hopefully it's a bit straighter and there's less tension and stress on the, on the structure. Yeah, I like what you said. They're creating a new experience. Like, um, and I've seen some That's of your huge, videos too. Word. Yeah, like uh, I think, what is it? I think it's almost like a paradigm. It's like a state. It's like a state of thinking. Like I think a lot commonly, it's like I'm going to make the body do something I wanted to do. Like you know, you must yeah. shift right. You know, you must do this. <laughs> like rather than, yeah. like what you said, you're allowing the brain to experience something new. Like they, you need to pronate more on this side. You need to allow yeah. more internal rotation. At, on this side and, and allowing the brain to experience those things. Uh, yeah, it's a game changer. I'm thinking now, as we're kind of in a conversational mode, but I remember you training, I would say ladies, I was training ladies, they're the ones that stand out and they're going into a squat and their knees are almost touching each other. And and the, the biomechanical standard is that the femur stays on top of the tibia, that's safe and anywhere inside that's dangerous. And you, and you start when you start looking at muscle tissue like we were talking about and asking what specifically do those muscle tissues do what movements do they decelerate they decelerate on are asked given the option to contract in a valgus flexed inside position and so these ladies have went from we've got to take these knees out because that's safe and use bands or whatever to pull knees out and squat down so this idea of actually they're doing that movement and and unconsciously to them they have no idea they're doing it wrong they're just waiting for their extensor chain to kick in and that what you're viewing is how long it takes for their extensor chain to kick in <laughs> so when the knees finally almost touch each other the brain goes oh shit wakes up and contracts the uh, tissue and pulls them back up again and you realize that actually you've got to improve the mechanics so you improve the foot pronation you improve the access into flexion and tibiofemoral external rotation and maybe hip flexion and whatever and then it's, they start to catch sooner and sooner and sooner. And they, they find themselves in a place where they can now squat neatly. But they never, ever get that opportunity to learn if we take the knees out, strap it out with a, with a band. Because it's the learning space that they're looking for. That's what we deprive them from. You see kids do it right from a young age. They start with their knees out. They get a bit older and ganglia. The knees go in. The muscles wake up. They find their center. And then they are who they are. Um, but we're seeing it in the gyms and I think we deprive people of that opportunity to really learn in that space. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. How much are you learning when it's just like shove your knees out to end point, you know, like, yeah. like work yeah, in this end range. Yeah. yeah. Pull your shoulders down. You know, <laughs> it's not a learning environment. We, we need to, we can instill that in people unconsciously so that the next time they jump into a squat, it feels like a knife through butter compared to before. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to get into uh, with the time we have left, uh, you've mentioned pronation a few times. I, I would really like to get into some of the those uh, deeper dives into the foot itself and uh, okay. how the pronation <coughs> and supination works into daily movement. But uh, something you said and how you wrote in what the foot was a it was really important for me. Something um, uh, my mentor Darian Barr has said to me a lot is you need to pronate like you need to pronate to be explosive. And I think we associate pronation with like you know, like bad, like you, you hear pronation and it's like, it's like, you know, just the way we've been conditioned. It's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's bad. Like, yeah, like don't pour you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so could you talk a little Strap bit about it? Up. I, I, and then too, well, also to you had mentioned the book, or, um, the foot pronating and how that impacts the knee and, and, 
uh, one thing too, and before I, I guess I fully get in the question, I was just thinking about something you were saying before, but one of my mind-blowing, I mean, it shouldn't be that, it's really simple actually, it shouldn't be a mind-blowing experience, but like I would have my tennis uh, athletes doing like uh, a walking drill where they would grab their rear leg and then do uh, behind them, and then they would do just like a little quarter squat and up into a calf raise on the leg on the ground, and the, there'd be guys who, of course, going into that valgus, and and so I think our our thought, our first thought is, oh, I need to band your knee and have you do quarter squat, you know, banded knee, whatever, um, and and ba- have the band pulling you into adduction so you abduct and and you're you know nice perfect straight line, and then I just started cueing their feet and just said, hey. Why don't you just focus on centering, you know, feel the trying, you know, the tripod in your foot before you do the yeah. squat. And all of a sudden someone whose knee was in valgus isn't in valgus anymore. I'm like, oh, I think this is a better way to fix this than, you know, banding yeah. someone's knee. This is cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's internal. Yeah, it's an internal dialogue. Yeah. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, um, I just thought I was thinking about that when you were talking about the squats as well. And, and I think we just always go to the joint. We don't look at the stuff on the outside. So, uh, sorry, I totally distracted from my question. Uh, pronation, though. But uh, um, you talk about, like, why, why is it well, – sorry, why is it important uh, and, and why, like, why is it such an important facet of human movement? And then also how you talked in the book about the energy storage facet of it. That was really fascinating to me. Um. So, I think the foot is obviously, um, the title of the book ends up being kind of my USP, what's what people know me for, even though we'll say, I can't really talk about the foot without talking about the whole body. Um, But the foot itself is no different to everything we've just talked about. So, we talked about the hip. In theory, should be able to, every joint, of which there are 33 in the foot, should be able to access both directions of its sagittal plane movement both directions of its frontal plane movement and both directions of its transverse plane movement. It's made of three structures, so the rear foot, including the ankle, the forefoot and the toes. Um, each little piece of the mechanics are, are kind of super important for flowing movement all the way up the chain. Um, and what I begin to talk about, instead of like high-flying anatomical language, is actually shapes shapes of the foot are really are really important um, because a lot of people will throw around words like pronation and supination it's pronated it's supinated and then then you actually dive in and feel the position of the bones and go it's not really um this because we we all if we go what is a bit like the tight weak long and sh- uh, short conversation whatever those words are i've forgotten again already um we look at a foot, and if the arch is closer to the ground, it's pronated, and if it's stiffened up, it's supinated, without actually taking into account of, of all the structures. But um, I'm, I'm happy to say that we've had people with super, they say, I've had supinated feet all my life, and then we'll go, you actually go and look and feel the position of the talus and the calcaneus, and, and it's actually what we would describe as pronated in the rear foot and hugely overcompensated in the forefoot, so it ends up being this stiff, non-moving thing. So the question is, is we've got a rear foot and we've got a forefoot, is what are the shapes they're supposed to make um, and what are the, how do the joints move? And, and if, in a really simple way, if you look at the joints on the underside of the foot, which is spanned across by the plantar fascia, if we're going to generate muscles lengthen before they contract theory 
into the plantar fascia, we need to create a lengthening of the foot. And a lengthening of the foot in order to trigger a contraction of the foot muscles comes in the form of a pronation. So a pronation is a foot lengthening and a foot widening. Um, and the, the widening comes from you know a three-dimensional concept. The lengthening comes out of a, a sagittal plane concept. So the, the fun part is that people who are already flat are already long. So we need to find a space where how do we make that foot longer and open those joints more in order to give the muscle no option but to contract? Because another school of thought is, well, if they're flat, then you're going to want to shorten the structure. But if you shorten the structure and you just shorten the muscle, it's no different to me than pulling the knee in, pulling the knee out from the in position that we talked about in the squat. So there's two ways at it. There's one way is we can teach the foot bones to be in a supinated position or a pronated position. Um, and the other way is we can we can really enhance the quality of a pronation to wake up the tissue so that those tissues begin to pull you into a supination. Because when we walk, uh, your heel hits the ground and quite quickly you're into a very strong uh, weight-bearing pronating position. And then all of those tissues, pretty much all of the tissues in the foot are set up to supinate. But that, again, that's like saying the... the, the um, extensors of the glute are set up to extend the hip so if they're set up to extend the hip they're set up actually to extend it from a flexed position in the same way as the supinated foot tissues are set up to supinate the foot from a pronated position which is where the term resupination came from in that i use in the book and so we got to be good at pronating in order to generate a supination response and we've got to be good at pronating in order to um well, my, my head went up to the hip, but we can talk about that in a sec, because I know that was one of your questions, but uh, we've actually got to be good at both pronating and supinating, is where, I wanted, is where I wanted to go. And so we need to know the shape, we need, need to know the mechanics, we need to know, um, and then obviously ways of, of actually cueing that um, for most people. But on the underside, in the foot pronation, on the underside of the foot, the joint, all the joints of the foot are opening. So if you can create an environment for the foot joints opening, on the base, you're starting to pronate the foot. Keep the tripod on the ground, like you just said, um, because, again, you can ask all of your clients to put their weight into the front foot and see if they can keep that fifth metatarsal head on the ground or even the first on the ground. And there's so many who aren't doing either. They're just pottering around on their second and third mets. Probably got some calluses there, maybe a history of a neuroma. And you go, you've actually got to get your first and fifth on the ground. Um, and lengthening the foot. The other thing to remember is a pronation is the joints on the inside of the foot want to be opening. Just like when I say opening, if I do a right lateral flexion in my spine, the joints are opening on the left-hand side. And so as I'm pronating my right foot, the joints will be opening on the inside, almost creating the same shape as the, as, as the spine. Um, but really the key part to this is, is the word both. You have to be able to have both of these movements. We don't want to just cue supination. We don't know what pronation is, and the muscles don't know how to get us out of pronation to get us into that supinated space. And we've got to teach pronation because most people have a more flat pronated foot, um, and those muscles are already long. And with the floor in the way, they don't have any lengthening extra to do, so they don't learn to do that either. Um, and that, that for me, really encompasses a, a fascinating kind of journey into understanding the foot is actually really not allowed to move because of the, the resting state that it's in. Yeah, how do you so how do you teach a good pronation? Because I think you know I, that was one of the things that I was like thinking a lot about. It's like okay, pronation is good; it's necessary to get into resupination. It's energy storage. 
But how do you ride that? You know, obviously some people you assume like, holy cow, your ankles are crashing into midline. Like, like how do you tell what, what is good pronation and how do you coach that or create that? Um, okay. The, um, the key is the tripod. So contact through the first metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal in the calcaneus. Um, uh, the knee bend. So the knee bend would be, let's say you, you aimed your mid patella towards the medial part of your big toe. So just to the inside. So we're not going second toe, uh, but you're also not going too far inside. Um, you might stand up and put your right leg forward, for instance, aim the patella towards that mid medial part of the big toe and just start to rotate your body to the left and just see, see what happens. You, you want to keep the, the first, fifth, and, and calcaneus on the ground. So if you're losing contact on the fifth metatarsal, the foot's rolling, basically in the frontal plane, then what we would do is we'd try and fill that space. So we'll use a wedge to um, put like a yoga wedge, just stick it under there, make bring the ground up to it, and try again and see if, it, if you get a different sensation in the tissue. Um, and the thing, what's really important is that the rear foot um, is always working in a closed chain in opposition to the forefoot. So if the rear foot's going down, the forefoot's going up, then you can use wedges to, to kind of simulate that as well. Um, ankles crashing to the inside, sometimes you might actually want to reduce the ankle crashing to the inside so they can get a, more of a sense of, of it actually, of how it actually does it. Um, quite difficult because there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, the, the, an interesting place to start is where are the foot structures? You'd be surprised when... Um, you actually go hands-on to a foot as to where, where the bones are, where the limitations are, um, what movements, back to what's missing, what movements of the, of the foot are they actually unable to access? So most people can't, um, well, a lot of people will rest with their, again, talus bone kind of collapsed underneath the tibia somewhere. <laughs> That's a lot of work to get that back um, with a really good supination movement. Um, but I think if you sit just to try it um, until we have kind of online products available to really teach this kind of stuff, um, if things aren't sitting on the ground well, then you can create a, kind of a surface for them to sit onto, uh, which will enable um, you just to experience that movement differently. So I call them ice skates. If your first and fifth aren't on the ground, I think you, you kind of, I think it might have been pre starting the recording but you mentioned about having weight in the heels in the squat if you can't get the weight into your forefoot then you're not going to be able to pronate so it's making sure that you've got weight in all these areas in the tripod in order to to see if you can finally get that foot to spread and not to be afraid of it a lot of people are afraid of it a lot of people are afraid of pronating because of the um the bad rep that, <laughs> that it's ended up getting and of course like if you have a pronated foot and it stays pronated forever then you have tension in the muscles you have a compromised knee and rotation limitations higher up whatever of course it's it's not great to live there full time which is why we have to give the experience of both so even if you go out there and you just start lubricating joints with gentle movement that's getting some feeling of pronation and some feeling of supination you're going to go a long way towards bringing awareness to people. And I think when people start to understand that, your brain starts kicking and, and, and kind of self-rescue. 
yeah there's so much in there to unpack I, I wrote like four notes i could probably take us about 30 more minutes in the conversation so i'll try to condense it a lot um <coughs> oh, what are the interesting... sorry i'm a bit <laughs> for me that felt like a, a little bit <laughs> no that was that was really good i mean and shoot i, I probably will have to follow up with you at some point afterwards I, I think that um i guess i'll start with this while you had mentioned like like and this is uh, like kind of like the postural restoration like the concept of alternation like as long as you don't live so like you just need to be able to get out of some a place like it's yeah. not it's not so bad to be somewhere but as long as you can get out and alternate through movement you're not stuck there um yeah uh you had mentioned okay so I, i'd like to actually with just a few minutes left actually i'd like to ask you a question on something that i think is pretty practical i think a lot of coaches practice and i i learned this um <clears throat> And it was actually a chiropractic student. I had him uh, come up and, and work out with me about four uh, months ago. And, and, and he was a, a, a tenant of a coach that I really respected. And one of the exercises they have super basic. And sometimes I'm like, okay, the basic, the more basic, the better. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, the more basic, the better, just because like, it's easier to like fully understand every component of what you're doing. And it was just simply standing barefoot and and feeling the tripod in the one leg and then just lifting the other leg straight ahead of you off the ground keeping both legs straight and then making sure that you held the tripod the whole exercise and kind of sensing if you were like leaning onto the fifth metatarsal more onto the first more as you fatigued um or something like that uh, so that would be uh i mean i guess that would be something that would be really basic uh, but like if an athlete i guess so if an athlete was just kept going into supination when they balanced uh, would they would uh, like a, a wedge or something like under that of the the first metatarsal be a good um, thing to put in there uh, or what do you yeah. think of that pair like that type of uh, drill in general um i think well it sounds like it's giving an awareness of where you know my contact points are and have i got it have i not a, a useful thing to do would be if in the area that i don't have if you supported it is what is what change does that make in your body uh, is it easier to hold? Is it easy? It might even be easier to lift your left leg up, you know. Um, um, it's but it, for me, it's not a drill that I would use. I would move into a um, the moment when we actually pronate our foot is is not when our body weight is stacked on top of it with the other leg up, but when we're towing off on the back leg, and our mass is mass being centre of mass over the pelvis. Um, actually traveling forwards over the foot to get my weight into the forefoot. So that's where the, the, we have two moments in the gait cycle where we pronate our foot, and it's it's that one, kind of almost immediately after heel strike. So calcaneus hits the ground, fifth and first metatarsals come into contact with the ground, there's your tripod, foot pronates, loads all the tissue, and starts supinating as you as you actually progress through the, the other leg swinging forward. So if we really want to learn about where foot pronation takes place and that that's going to be that's going to be it even for a runner a sprinter the um, the mechanics change slightly obviously uh, the faster they go the less heel contact there is but there's still still going to be a lowering of the of the rear foot towards the ground with the same mechanical articulation um, so still loading up the plantar fascia posterior tib etc to to fire forward again so the mechanics change, but it's still it's it's happening at that moment when the body's kind of just passing over that front foot with the leg behind, running slightly different because you only you don't have two feet on the ground at the same time. But um, so and allowing yourself to explore, explore with the knee going inside 
and explore with the knee going to the little toe and look at the foot shape changes it makes. Explore rotating your ribcage to the left and explore with the ribcage rotating to the right. Look at the foot changes, shapes it changes that it makes. Uh, if you rotate left, what? look at your knee, look at the knee position. If you take the knee out, they're, they're totally different mechanics. Both, the knee is capable of doing of doing both, but we tend to train one of them out, which is the foot pronation, knee valgus. But actually we need to get good at that so that we can be safe in that environment as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like if you're just standing and you're, uh, shin is perpendicular to the ground that's going to represent a different part of the gait cycle where you're going to be yeah, either supinated or pronated like it's not like you're not going to have yeah. it all in that position no at that moment in time you're right when the when the other leg is in when you're in mid stance then your foot should be supinating back from its previously pronated position so if you're going to hold that position tripod on the ground you're really in a supinatory moment there um, and you wind it back a little bit, just put your leg behind you in a lunge, but a forwards momentum-based lunge, not a dropping down to the ground lunge, where you're putting your weight over that front foot, you can start to, should be able to start to feel the foot spread and tissues, new experiences. Yeah, yeah new experiences. I like that term. I'm going to start changing my vocabulary around a little bit. Um, yeah, I... we, we use that all the time. Like you realize that when, as gait itself is repetitive, life is repetitive, our human patterns are just repetitive based on a, on a history. But if you finally realize that those, that history isn't serving you anymore, you, you, you break out of the box and do something different and, and your brain lights up. I mean, it happens in all walks of life, but it's no different, it should be no different in your, in your own physical body. Yeah, cueing, um, I think it really puts a good spin on how we cue the feet in athletic lifts. I do think the industry is moving forward off the through the heels mentality i at least i hope i think they are uh, into some other things but I, I but what you just said there also is a really important factor in how we look at the feet if we're doing a squat or a lunge or a split squat or where our foot or our shin is in a different position and and yeah. at what part of that because and how it reflects um the gait cycle i mean i even think i've always felt like too like even just letting athletes just you know start them in a tripod and just let them kind of go naturally they're probably going to naturally fit the movement with the gait cycle in a lot of cases um, yeah. Rather than just saying, just do this or stay in supination on the roof for the yeah. Or no, there's like a certain amount of freedom um, required because I think I think you can trust that the, the the body knows. Like I don't. I think that's something that we've also lost. So the fifth rule to miss out of yeah. you oh, yeah. was the brain's hardwired, um, and it's hardwired to where the center is. It finds what it believes is the center for today, but you show it a new one tomorrow, and it will move towards it. Um, and so that's when, as you give it new opportunities, new experiences, then it then it will it will it starts to find find its way, um, and and then good stuff starts to happen. And it wasn't really for me; it was never the intention. Yeah. Uh, so last uh, last just last little bit, um, and maybe if you just want to spend a couple minutes on this, I thought this was really cool that you mentioned. I've seen your videos on this, but like the idea of not squatting over the second. You know, it's like draw a line between your. First and second toe, or your second toe, or, or I've even seen some people coach squatting over the pinky toes. They're like, "Oh, you're mm. you're glute dominant. You need to be quad dominant. Squat over your pinky toe." <laughs> yeah. Like what you had mentioned, just squatting kind of more over the big toe. Could you just go into that for just a couple minutes? Um, yes. First thing, uh, human movement and strength training are potentially two different realms. So if somebody is squatting under a heavy load you might not want to cue pronating the foot at the same time, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but 
if we come away from that and in a prep place or a yeah a prep place is where we're actually teaching them to pronate the foot and use the muscles of the hip etc then it will we can we can influence the mechanics in such a way that when they go into the loaded squat it's already they're already doing it differently we also can look at big power lifters recognizing right at the bottom of the squat their knees come in a bit and their feet go in a bit so there is a kind of natural the brain goes how the hell am i going to get this up like a thousand kilos i'm going to have to get some muscle action somewhere so knees go in foot goes in and they bounce bounce back up to the top and i know we've had conversations over the years but some coaches are cueing that as well but uh, i wanted to just just be safe like and if you're going to you need to learn how to pronate the foot properly before you go and try it under a bar. <laughs> um, but uh, it's interesting. It was probably a nice one to, to end on. But if you if you monitor the mechanics of a squat, um, the, the first thing is the knee. So I talked about that. You, you, if, you t- if you squat and the knee uh, bends out towards the pinky, you're flexing the knee and you're internally rotating the, the knee. And that is um, by virtue of the tibia um internally rotating more than the femur uh let me i just need to get my get that right the you'll feel the the tibia internally rotate as you take that out if you take the knees towards the big toe on the inside you actually get an external rotation of the knee so uh, what are we cueing flexion external rotation or flexion internal rotation again the knee is capable of doing both you're also supinating the foot on a dorsiflexing ankle Whereas the other one, you're pronating the foot on a dorsiflexing ankle. I've got, uh, in the book, I talk about a type 1 and a type 2 foot mechanic. Um, and so we're, we're, they're tapping into two different ways that the talocrural joint can move with the foot. But then you come higher up, um, and then the, we'll, we'll use the, the, the primary muscle for getting you back out of the squat is the glute, right? Yeah. Theory? <laughs> so if I take the knees out... Um, the I get an external rotation at the hip, I get an abduction at the hip and a flexion at the hip to, all the way down to the bottom at which point I've taken that glute and I've lengthened it in the sagittal plane but shortened it in the other two whereas if I allow the knees to come in, externally rotate the knee, pressure goes towards the tibia, then I'm adducting, internally rotating and flexing the hip which is three dimensional load of the glute so it's a natural phenomenon that we would do that in order to to create ease coming back up so if i don't when i'm coming back up with my toes out to the pinky i'm going to be able to demand some kind of contraction from the sagittal plane of the glute but not from the other two planes of the glute so we're, we're not we're not full throttle with the glute so we're now going to have to ask something else that is fully lengthened in order to how we get back up which ends up in, in a at the knee flexion space. So we're now looking at quads, the quads and the vastus set that are now eccentrically loaded at the base. And they're going to have to do the majority of the, 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 the push. So I don't know if that's a switch to how we end up being quad dominant versus glute dominant, because the quads are going to do more to get us up than that. We're not asking most from our glutes. So, um, that when I, when people I run through that with people, they they always find that that's um, one challenging to follow, but two start, kind of starts to make sense, especially when you go quad dominant. So if we then Im- improve our pronation, improve our knees' ability to go valgus, which is what where the quads actually come to life, and, and um, encourage our pelvis and hips to internally rotate as well, we can ac- have access to the whole extensor chain. Now, I do class the quads as the extensor chain because they extend the knee. 
um, and the hips uh, extend, the glutes and stuff, extensor chain extend the hips. So we want them all working together, and it's by, in an unloaded place, teaching people to, to do it bilaterally, pronate the foot, flex the knee, externally rotate the knee. External rotation of the knee is the, is the femur internally rotating further than, it, than the tibia does. And that will kind of spark everything up to, 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 to get back up to the top. But as we have this conversation, I'm, you know, if you, you then you, you, that's all good. Do make sure that their weight's even left and right. Is it in the right forefoot and the left forefoot and the heels, or is it in one heel versus the other forefoot? Um, you know, how are they set up right from the, right from the off? And, and I think good coaches and good corrective kind of exercisey people will will have a good reference for where the structure is. So if you know if that pelvis is rotated to the left. Rotate your pelvis to the left. What does that do to your feet? It puts the weight in your left heel and your weight in the right forefoot. That's going to change a lot of stuff. So if that matches the pattern with which they squat, then start getting them to feel the opposite and just play around. It's a real opportunity to play, not worrying about causing any problems because you're just inviting the body to to experience new things. But sure, the knee over toe, knee over pinky, knee over inside will always get people raging. Uh, I'm sure that that bit did as well, but. Um, we know we're, we can track it through the mechanics. If you can track it through the mechanics, you can track the muscle response. If you can track the muscle response, you know what's doing the work and what's not. All right on. I know I, I I would certainly have a bunch of good follow up conversation for that, but sadly I think our our time's even in. But that was that was a really good little blast bit there. And just uh, the one thing that's ringing in my mind is kind of like those people who are say squattery piggy toe. It's like well you're giving the athlete a new experience. That's for sure. <laughs> a glute, yeah. a, a non-planar glute experience. <laughs> but uh, maybe I mean, you kind of said uh, that they might be doing it because they're quad dominant. Yeah, but exactly. It would actually, in theory, probably fuel that. So you need to come out. And... I think a lot of people are not very good on 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 both legs at the same time. I think single leg squats might be a way forward because at yeah. least you can work with that leg's potential and one's not handing its service over to the other you know <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's a good way of thinking about it i think uh yeah the single leg squat crowd too there's a the strength conditioning crowd you know, you got your bilateral people your single leg people and that's just i think it's just a different way of thinking about what goes into each movement you know like like the more you understand about it the, be- the, the better it is so i like yeah, it for sure well may it be an invitation for people to 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 understand understand more Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, Gary, thank you for your time today. Totally appreciate it, man. Uh, I think we both uh, got some things to go get on with our day. So, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I totally uh, appreciate uh, you hopping on the show today. Thank you. I massively appreciate being invited again. Thanks so much, John. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. We'll see you guys next week with another great episode. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Also, if you enjoyed the show and you have iTunes, Stitcher, which I'm assuming you probably are using one of those, uh, if you're just opening the browser on Just Fly Sports, very cool. But would love if you guys dropped us a rating. It would really help what we're doing, spreading the word on that to other people who would be interested. We'll see you guys again next week. Till then, have a good one.